0: Well, this is our last parable we're going to look at, and I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Before we get into the story of the rich man and Lazarus, beginning in verse 19, I want to build up to that, beginning back in verse 13 of chapter 16, one of the reasons why this story of Lazarus and the rich man is one of my favorites in the Word of God is because I believe here that beyond Jesus talking to us about the afterlife and and man's destiny of of his eternal soul, that, that God wants to impress upon us actually something even greater. And that is He wants to impress upon us the authority of His Word the sufficiency of His Word, and the value of His Word. And I hope that more than anything else, that's what comes out of the passage of Scripture we're going to look at tonight. And the reason I wanted to start then in verse 13 is because even back there, Jesus begins to build a case for the authority of God's Word in our life. And who really has authority in our life? Who's the the one that we are, you know, in a sense, living under? and and surrendering to, and submitting to. And you'll notice there in verse 13, in the midst of his teaching, Jesus says, listen, no servant can serve two masters. And the word master there means supreme authority. Who's the one that's going to have supreme authority? And no one can have two supreme authorities. No one. We're only going to end up with one supreme authority. Who's going to be the one that calls the shots? Who's going to be the one that ultimately determines the direction? Is, are we going to be in charge, or is, are we going to let God in charge? In fact, not to be picky or anything, and I hope none of you have this on your car, and if you do, please, I'm not, I'm not being, you know, nasty about it. I, I really. I, but every once in a while, I'll see a bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot. And I'm like, look, God doesn't want to be our co-pilot. God wants to be the pilot. God wants to be the leader. He wants to be in charge. He wants us to follow Him. He's the supreme authority. You see. And so that's where Jesus is going with that. And so He says, either He will hate the one and love the other, or He will be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you cannot serve God and money And that was the real sticky thing with the religious leaders of Israel because you'll notice in verse 14, the Bible informs us that the Pharisees loved money. And that's what drove them in all of their decisions and choices and everything, even as the religious leaders. For them, it was always about money, you see. That was really the authority of their life, not the Lord. So the Lord then, Jesus, says to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in men's eyes, but God knows your heart. They are illustrating those who honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from Him. And they are literally declaring their own righteousness, which is something that we don't need to do. First of all, the only one that can declare us righteous is God Himself. And for us to go around declaring our own righteousness is, is not what we are to be about. And they did that because they were seeking men's approval. They were seeking the applause of people, you see, rather than God. But God knew their hearts. He always has a perfect and complete knowledge of our heart. And that can either be something that is a little, makes a person a little uneasy or it can be a great comfort depending on where we are in our relationship with God. And then notice this, very important at the end of verse 15. Jesus says this, For what is highly prized among men, what is valued and esteemed among men, is utterly detestable in God's sight. Literally an abomination. And Jesus is laying again the foundation for this story of the rich man and Lazarus, because in that story, one of the things he's going to reveal is this. That though now on earth, many people will be living by the value system of the world. They will be aligning their life based upon our culture and what the culture says is okay and acceptable and what the culture approves of. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's what God approves of and applauds. And one day throughout eternity God is going to intervene once and for all in history and for all of eternity human beings will live by God's value system not by the world's value system not even by our value system everyone will be living by what God values and the reason why Jesus lays that out is because he's trying to urge those who follow him to say Why don't you start living by God's value system now? Because you're going to have to live by that value system throughout eternity. What God prizes, what God thinks is a priority, what God values, that's what we're all going to be doing throughout eternity. Not again what we value and what we esteem and what we highly prize, but what God values. And it's just the opposite today. You know, what does the world value? What does the world say is great? What what does the world applaud? Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what God values and applauds. In fact, just as Jesus said, it could be an abomination to God. But the world says, it's okay. We're giving it a thumbs up. We're saying it's okay. And Jesus clearly is drawing a line and a stand and a distinction there. Then he says... The law and the prophets were in force until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urged to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tiny stroke of a letter in the law to become void. God is saying here that even that hook that apostrophe that is used in language to differentiate one letter from another, he says that will not lose its authority or force from God's perspective. Everything that he said, and and can I say that's why in my mind it's important for us not to just study the Word of God, but to study the words of God. Because even the little hook the little apostrophe that God uses to differentiate and distinguish between letters, he says, even those will not lose their force. Heaven and earth will pass away, but they will not lose their authority. And so he's talking here about the authority of God's word. And he's talking here about the values and the value system that we should be living by. And it's based on that then, that he says this, everyone who divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery and the one who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Basically, even in Jesus' day, they were lowering the standard for marriage and divorce. They were making it up as they went along and they were succumbing to the, to the way culture viewed marriage and divorce. And Jesus saying, look, you can, you can vote on a certain thing and you can make your own human law and you can say this and that about marriage and divorce, but at the end of the day, it doesn't change the validity of God's Word. It doesn't change the authority of how God looks at marriage and how God looks at divorce, you see. And that should be all that matters. Not what we think, not what man thinks, but what does God think. And God is simply saying here, through Jesus Himself, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, this is going to be the authority throughout eternity. This is the value system, you see. And one day all will live by this value system. And so He's trying to get us to let his word now have that kind of authority, that kind of weight, that kind of validity in our life now. He's trying to get us to see uh, how important it is to adopt his values, what God highly prizes, and, and to go after you know what he esteems and live by that standard rather than letting the standards of the world that are ever-changing creep in and begin to be sort of the 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 structure that we live by. And if that was true 2,000 years ago when Jesus laid this out, how much more true is it today? So with those words, Jesus says this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and the reason Jesus chose that is because in his day, only rich people could afford to be dressed in purple. you wearing purple? No, I'm just teasing Unlike today. And fine linen. And who feasted sumptuously every day. Had a gourmet meal every day. That's emphasized in the original. Every day. Not just once a week. Every day. A gourmet meal. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, whose body was covered with sores, who longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. In addition, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, folks, let me say this before we even get further into this. Jesus here is not teaching that the rich man ends up in hell and Lazarus, the poor man, ends up in heaven because he was rich and he was poor. That has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with what Jesus has already talked about. That Lazarus responded to the word of God in his lifetime. And he valued what God valued and he... Let the word of God have authority in his life. The rich man did not value the things of God. The rich man did not respond to the word of God. That's why he ended up where he did. Notice Jesus goes on to say, Now the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Even the angels were assisting in this man's care as he entered into paradise. The rich man also died and was buried. And notice there was no reaction from heaven when the rich man dies. Any kind of fanfare, if you will, for him. None at all. And by the way, the word died stresses the significance of separation in the Bible. Not only that we are separated, if you will, physically from the, the material, is separated from the immaterial at that point. But interestingly, as Jesus is teaching this in the context, he's also reminding us everything that the rich man thought was valuable, he was separated from and would be for all of eternity. Everything he lived for, everything he banked on, everything that he filled his life with, he would now once and for all be separated from. And everything that was of real value to Lazarus and to others who live by God's value system and by God's word, actually when they die, don't get separated from the things of greatest value, we actually enter into a greater connection and fellowship with the things that really matter. And that's one of the other things that Jesus here is reminding us of as he shares this story. So the Bible says, in hell, verse 23, the realm of the dead, the rich man was in torment. He was a tortured soul. And notice this also. He was immediately conscious after death. There is no such thing as soul sleep, or when someone dies, they, they are, live an unconscious existence somewhere. No, the Bible, Jesus Himself teaches that once a person dies, they are immediately conscious and they are in one of two places. And notice that also. There's not three or four different places that a person can go. There's only two, according to Jesus. And Jesus is also going to teach in this story that one's eternal destiny is irreversible after death. Can't be changed. Up until death, always a chance. But after death, one's eternal destiny is irreversible. He looked up. And he saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. Now, I believe that the story that Jesus is giving us is sort of an exception and an exceptional story. I don't think that this happens all the time out there in the realm of the dead. But I think for the sake, again, of what Jesus was trying to accomplish here in the context of what he was teaching and who he was talking to, he wanted to share this story with them. So he called out the rich man, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in anguish in this fire. Now very interestingly, the rich man's anguish and suffering in the realm of the dead here he's really not emphasizing his physical torment. The words that are used here by the man himself emphasizes the deep, intense, emotional, and acute pain that he's going through. And it's actually more of an emotional pain than it is a physical pain. I think that's significant and something that we need to be reminded of. Because many times when we think of the torment of the afterlife for those that don't have a relationship with Christ, we might tend to focus on the physical pain that they might go through. But here, even though the man is saying, I want my tongue cooled, obviously that implies that there is some physical suffering there. The words and language that he uses are words that describe deep, intense, emotional pain. Notice something else here. and We're going to see this again. Notice that even in hell, this man is unchanged. Because notice what his attitude is toward Lazarus. He still looks at Lazarus as someone who's beneath him. Someone who should be, he should be able to, you know, order around, say, hey, you know, do this for me and do that for me. He is unchanged even there. That's why some even Christians have a hard time wrapping their mind around why do people have to spend all of eternity apart from Christ in a place like hell? Because they're, they're, they're not going to ever change. Ten million years from now, they're still going to be depraved, and filled with sin. Because the only thing that can transform a heart is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And therefore, if they reject Jesus and reject the only power that can transform them, they will remain in that unchanged state for all of eternity. See, for you and I who are in Christ... We are, thank God, a new creation. Old things are passing away even now. All things are becoming new. And though our outward man is perishing, Paul says, yet the inner man can be renewed day by day. And we have the prospect, John says, of when we see Him, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. But for those that don't have a relationship with God, They will remain in the state they died in for all of eternity. And that's exactly what we see illustrated here. So in verse 25, Abraham says, Child, which is a term that implies dependence. He is acknowledging Abraham, this man's dependence. Even though this man lived a very independent life because of his wealth and comfort when he was alive on earth, Abraham is reminding him, you're just a child. You might have been a big mover and shaker while you were on earth, and you could tell this person to do that and that, and you might have had tons of servants, and you might have had all this stuff, but... From God's perspective, and now in eternity, you got to be reminded you're a child. You're dependent on God. Your whole existence was dependent on God. And then He says, "This child, remember." And I think that that's part of the emotional acute pain that people who die and go out into eternity without Christ will will do, is they will be able to remember they will be able to recollect and call to mind their lifetime and all the times that they could have maybe turned to Christ and accepted the authority of the Word of God and lived by the value system of God rather than their own value system. And Abraham's pointing that out. And he uses the word lifetime here because it means the time on earth that God entrusted to you. That's something important for us to be reminded of. Each of us is given a lifetime by God. A time here on earth that He entrusts us with. It's part of our stewardship. What are we going to do with our lifetime? All of us don't get the same amount of time on earth. But what God does want to see is with the time He entrusts us on earth, what are we doing with it? And again, in the context, are we living under the authority of God, His Word, and are we valuing the things that God values and living by that value system? Because again, notice the great reversal in eternity. Notice that, that in eternity, now the rich man is reduced, if you will, and now he's living all of eternity by God's value system, if you will, He's no longer under his value system or the world's value system. And the same thing on a positive note is true of Lazarus. Though Lazarus might have spent his lifetime living in discomfort and and being plagued maybe by one thing after another and not having very much of this world's good, now throughout all of eternity, oh, he's living by a different value system. You see, what, what again God wants to teach us here is as his disciples we have got to learn not to live for this life, but for the life to come. Because in this life, there may be some of even God's followers like Lazarus who are plagued with many discomforts in this life for one reason or another. But this isn't the life we're living for. We are living for eternity. And so he says, Child, in your lifetime, you received your good things. In fact, you came to expect and depend upon the comforts and the pleasures which your wealth provided for you, Jesus says. But Lazarus, likewise, bad things. Again, things that were painful, things that brought discomfort. But yet, notice this. But now, big word, three letters, but big meaning, now, at this present time, this is a state now in contrast with the former state, and this state lasts forever. Lazarus' discomfort only lasted for his earthly lifetime, now, it's going to be different for Lazarus forever i've shared this with you before i'll share it again tonight for those who don't know christ anything good that they can experience on earth is the only heaven they will ever know and for those of us who know christ is our savior any any. Discomfort, any pain, any suffering, any trial, any tribulation that we go through on earth is the only hell we will ever know. And one day the values that men live by now on earth is going to be reversed for all of eternity. The great reversal is coming. Let's live by those values now. So he says, Lazarus experienced bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. You're experiencing acute pain and you're tormented. And besides all this, Abraham says, a great chasm, a great gap, a great gulf has been fixed between us. It means to be forever established. Again, the destinies are irreversible after death. In fact, Abraham even goes on to say, so that those who want to cross over from here to you could not do so, and no one can come or cross over from there to us. That's it. Boom. So the rich man said, then I I beg you, Father... He's making here an earnest request. Again, notice though, send Lazarus. He hasn't changed. He still looks at Lazarus as his errand boy, if you will, to do his bidding, even while he's there in torment. See, his perspective, his mind has never been changed through a relationship with God. So he will be forever living in his sin just like everyone else who dies without Christ and goes out into eternity. Sobering thought, is it not? So he says, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers and I want to warn them so that they don't come into this place of torment. Notice he understands the reality of what he's dealing with here and he knows that there's no way he can reverse his destiny. So then he begins to think, but I at least don't want my family members to come to this place. So, Abraham, wouldn't it be great to give them some kind of sign from the other side here to send somebody back to warn them, to affirm them what's what it really is like? <laughs> After death, for those that don't know Christ. But Abraham said, and this, can I just tell you, for, for someone who believes in the Word of God and who teaches the Word of God, and for those of us here who love the Word of God and hunger after the Word of God and share the Word of God, this is significant, what Jesus here is teaching. And what Abraham said. Notice, he says, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they possess the Old Testament Scriptures. They have the Word of God. They must respond to them. They must hear God's voice in His Word. Now again, notice, rich man still still a sinner so notice his response to Abraham no literally in the original that's out of the question Abraham (laughs) and you're thinking someone's in hell right they're going to be a little bit more uh you know compliant no no he's still arguing with Abraham he still denies the truth of the sufficiency of God's Word. And He always will. Because they're lost. Because they've never been transformed or changed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, but if someone would go back from the dead to them, they will respond. They'll have a change of heart. If somebody would just rise from the dead... They'll believe. Give them a sign, Abraham. Give them a sign. Show them a miracle. And here's what Abraham and what God says. If they do not respond, if they do not hear God's voice in the Old Testament Scriptures, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And my friends, if you ever were looking for a passage of Scripture and a few verses where Jesus Himself teaches the sufficiency of the Word of God, this is the place to go. Because basically what Jesus and what Abraham is teaching here is that the Word of God is more powerful than any sign No sign, no matter what it is, is a substitute for the Word of God. People want signs. And Jesus even gave them, did He not, a sign? He rose from the dead. Did hundreds of thousands of people flock to the kingdom of God after Jesus rose from the dead? No. Because men will not be persuaded to faith by signs if they are not persuaded to faith by the word, the sufficient word of God. If they don't hear God's voice in His word, then they won't respond or be persuaded even if someone were to come back from the dead. So here in this great passage of Scripture, Jesus is teaching us about the authority of His Word, about the value that we place on His Word, and about the sufficiency of the Word of God. Yes, He certainly weaves into all of that some great truth about the reality of eternity and and our destiny without Him and the great reversal that's coming. But the main thrust of Jesus in this passage is to get those who are listening to Him and those who will listen to this Word down through the ages to come to grips with the authority, value, and sufficiency of the Word of God. That's why I love the fact, folks, that we are building a church based upon the Word of God. And in our day, when the Word of God is being trivialized, even in Christian circles, we need to continue to stand strong and bold on the Word of God and be a church that teaches it over and over and over again. Because in our day, People are trading in the Word of God for the wisdom of the world. And we're going to talk more about that on Sunday. Hope you'll come back and be with us on Sunday.